Okay. There it is. We're back in business. Excellent. Okay. Okay. Girl. Now, I can't have any more background singing. Tonight we're going to make love. You know how I know. <laughs> this is... Because it's Wednesday. Not dinner time. And Wednesday night is the night that we usually this make love. This is professional time. Monday night is my Business night time, to cook. They say. Tuesday night we go and visit your mother. Yeah, I'll when have a Wednesday, little room that'll have like on air. Like this light switch that says on air. The red. It's when everything is just right. There's nothing okay, good on TV. Okay, well it's just me and you again. You haven't had your afterwork they social sports in practice, so you're not too tired. Uh, okay, she didn't get oh, finished, or she's busy. It's all on. She. Didn't you lean in and whisper something end. sexy in my ear like I might go to bed now, I've got work in the morning. He's going to. I know what you're trying to say. Yeah, it's um you're trying to say anyone oh, can jump man. in even if you're not at it's the end, I think, with this one. It's business. She says, I did not get through it all. I'll listen to your discussion. I'll listen to your discussion after I finish it, maybe next <laughs> That's the same. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> All right. All right. Then went in the bathroom. Well. Brushing our teeth. Let me so uh, part of the fall my, I love fall. My introduction, day. and we'll we'll launch into this. And you saw that the professionalism that we're known for. That isn't part of the foreplay process, but it is still very important. Next thing you know, we're in the bedroom. Oh, You're wearing that baggy old ugly t-shirt you got from your work several years ago. All right, everyone in this house, it's going to be quiet. Okay. Life in a chair. I removed my clothes very, very clumsily. A time comes when you're all alone. When you've come to the end of everything that can happen to you. Now I'm naked, it's the end of the world. For my Even grief. And you know when I'm down to just my oh my god, really? What time it is. <laughs> okay, that's enough with your stirring. Here we go. A time comes... No, that's not the right time. A time comes when you're all alone. I think he died in 1961 of an aneurysm, but then I, I found that line just so bizarre, so that his house burnt down, destroying manuscripts, but his parrot lived. Where's that from? <laughs> Wikipedia. <laughs> Might not be true. <laughs> you never know. So yeah. Yeah, hey, yeah, how did you find him in comparison to Kohler? How did, uh, uh, so that's what's interesting. So Kohler was like reflecting on his life, whereas this was more of a like a tale of moving through life. Mm -hmm. And the problem I had was you don't know, like like the scope of time we're really dealing with here mm -hmm. i mean unless i wasn't reading closely enough 
but uh, in his own life, some of these adventures were only a year, you know, in the place. Like, he, I think he only spent, like, a year in Africa and a year in Detroit and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's like, um, I wonder if I would appreciate this if, if there was less of it. Um, like just, just if it had focused on the first half or something, you mean? Well, I mean, so you definitely, like, there, there is a point about how death is coming for us all, right? So, like, that's the, Mm -hmm. the big ending. Robinson's dying, right? Yeah. Uh, what, so how does it end? It says that it's coming for all of us, you know? Yeah. yeah and that would be the, the uh, end of us. That's, that's the sort of theme all the way through the, the book. Oh, parapine. Yeah. At that point, I'm like, there's so many people I don't, I can't keep track of anymore. I don't know who the hell they are. Who is parapine? Parapine. Uh, I, I, he was towards was... the end of and whatever they were doing, but you know, so like then you have <laughs> that was what's funny. So uh, of course, he's oh, sleeping he's just... with Robinson's fiance before they're married, right? Yeah, I sorry, yeah, Parapine. I I think he just works for the uh, the mental asylum. Okay, the... okay. And then Robinson's oh. checked into the mental asylum. Yeah. He's basically hiding out. <laughs> but his, his wife is like... So it seems like that's, you know, part of it is there's all this heaviness of the life that they've led that's like hanging over them at the end mm-hmm. where they killed the old woman or somebody pushed her down the stairs and killed her. Well, Robinson admits to it. Um... And... And so it seems like they're capable of a lot, you know, like when he's fighting with, with his fiance, and maybe the mother-in-law, and they're worried because he just wants to. He wants to be done with people for a bit. Yeah. Then he, yeah. What's her name? Madelon. Yeah. Madelon. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then, Bardamu ends up slapping her. That's yes. a terrible scene. <laughs> yeah. And he felt really good about it, too. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> like he hit her like an animal or something, like, <laughs> uh, or you kick a puppy or like, you know, it's like, oh, the, all these awful things that they're doing, you know, that where you have an expression to whine like a kicked puppy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, uh, there's some... Uh, but yeah, then Sophie, a... too. So like they're... So, like, I know that if you think, like, that's one of the other things I was trying to keep my head in, is that, like, especially in the United States, things got really conservative after World War II, but, like, things were really crazy after World War One, where, like, that's when, um, you know, it was the Roaring Twenties, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so, you know, they wanted, he, he was talking about having a foursome with Robinson and 
Yeah, that was his whole, yeah, his whole fantasy. Right. And then they have that uh, disastrous trip to the the carnival. Right. You know. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and she shoots him. <laughs> yeah, she shoots him in a, in a taxi cab. <laughs> well, the, yeah, it's interesting your theory. If he's um, if he's a Tyler Durden, like. Like, how would it work, you know? Like, um, um, uh, like obviously, he's not being shot. Like, he didn't die. I mean, he, he ended up writing the story, right? Yeah. Um, but, uh, but at the same time, it's almost impossible that he could meet up with Robinson that often all the time, you know? Like, just the... Uh, right, in Africa, and then... In New York and in Detroit. Yeah, in the war, like, <laughs> and, then, and then later on in Paris, he, uh, right. Yeah, it's just, uh, but and then it's almost like he expects to meet um, him, like he he goes into New York and he knows that uh, Robinson is there. That's he's he's looking around for him. It's like, you know, how do you know Robinson is there? You know, he just assumes that he must have left Africa and gone to New York in the same way that he did um, which is like it's a completely irrational thought like why why would he have gone to New York you know like um. well so when when after he was out of the war he was either so he was convalescing at some hospital I think but he was also with Lola yeah his first sort of girlfriend is Lola yeah and, and an... it seemed like at that point in time things were kind of still like fun maybe but definitely when he was in New York with Lola that it was it was really strained and weird yeah yeah no it's um he came back to Lola sort of well just to get money from her basically but sort of he wanted his revenge also <laughs> He basically told Lola that her mom is going to die. <laughs> you know, there's no, there's no possibility of her getting better, um, and uh, basically broke her heart. You know, um, and got a ton of money just, just because she wanted to get rid of him. Um, but he's, he's he's taking revenge on Lola um, for breaking up with him in France. Because Lola called him a coward, you know, when he completely is an amazing speech. His speech to Lola is is excellent um, about the war and how terrible, how he doesn't believe in the war and how it's like a complete sham. Ah, yeah, here it is. Um, yeah, this is this is it. Uh, so Lola's saying. Ferdinand, you're an absolute coward. You're as loathsome as a rat. Yes, an absolute coward, Lola. I reject the war and everything in it. I don't deplore it. I don't resign myself to it. I don't weep about it. I just plain reject it and all its fighting men. I don't want anything to do with them or it. Even if there were 995 million of them and I were all alone, they'd still be wrong and I'd be right because I'm the one who knows what I want. I don't want to die. Um, and then she calls him crazy, and then he says, uh, if that's the case, hooray for the crazy people. Look, Lola, 
Do you remember a single name, for instance, of any of the soldiers killed in the Hundred Years' War? Did you ever try to find out who any of them were? No, you see, you never tried. As far as you're concerned, they're as anonymous, as indifferent, as the last atom of that paperweight, as your morning bowel movement. Get it into your head, Lola, that they died for nothing, for absolutely nothing. The idiots. I say it and I say it again. I've proved it. The one thing that counts is life. In 10,000 years, I'll bet you this war, unremarkable as it may seem to us at present, will be utterly forgotten. Maybe here and there in the world, a handful of scholars will argue about its causes or the dates of the principal uh, hecatombs that made it famous. Up until now, those are the only things about men that other men have thought worth remembering after a few centuries, a few years, or even a few hours. I don't believe in the future, Lola. And then she, and then she, she dumps him. You know, she calls him a, because she's like this American over in Paris who's just like raw, raw for the war. You know, she doesn't have to get involved at all, you know, and he completely resents her for that, for, for, for dumping him and calling him a coward and dumping him when, when he can see through the, the total, uh, bullshit of, of what war is. Um, well, right. And so like that, I think it was maybe during that point in time when I was reminded like some of the Hemingway stuff where they're, when they just start shooting enlisted men that are disagreeing with orders and stuff. Yeah. And so like that, like, it's just so brutal. Like, uh, I, they, I, you know, I've studied that a little bit in the past and just to, to imagine, you know, it's like, uh, all these officers are bad and so they shoot them and start fresh you know it's like wow you know this is this is your own side man yeah he he talks about that in this book too it's like um he's saying that uh in the past the religion is the the main religion of europe was uh was christianity of course right and then the heretics were burnt alive but then that god died or failed and so the new religion, the new God is the state and war is its religion. Um, and the heretics are the deserters and the, the people who uh, reject war and they, and they get killed. Like you said, you know, like, uh, um, lose their livelihood, um, get killed. They have to leave the society, whatever, you know, but, uh, it's, it's the people that don't believe in, in, in the state and its war that's treated like the heretic now. Um, so I thought that was great. Well, th I think because it starts there, they definitely consider this like a war book, um, mm. which is interesting because it's, like I said, only about a third of it. But uh, his descriptions of the people being shelled and killed are mm. are wonderfully brutal like you really yeah. you you have a sense of what what it really was like yeah like just um uh, that scene early on where he's he's on night duty and uh he's just enjoying how enjoying the bright fires of villages um being burnt in the countryside <laughs> yeah <laughs> where were they what 
Flanders? Yeah, yeah, yeah. At one point, um, they say Flanders. But this is really early in the war. Like, it's only the first few weeks or first couple months or something. Um, so right in 1914, it seems like. Like, there's a break. Um, yeah, it's right here. I just flipped to it. Yeah. Um, we each went back to the war, and then things happen, and a lot more things that it's not easy to tell any... It's not easy to tell about now because people nowadays wouldn't understand them anymore. And then there's a break, and then he's in Paris um, at at the hospital or whatever. So there's a huge section, like in his memory, I guess, that that he cuts out um, about what happened in the war, what what finally made him go mad in the war. Um, he doesn't talk about. That's on page forty-two. <laughs> <laughs> that speech you read with with Lola that was definitely in Paris, right? Yeah, yeah. So she yeah, she leaves Well, I there. ended up con confusing her with another girlfriend because it seems like Lola left him for the Argentinians. And uh, no, Lola left him because of like he's a coward, yeah. But there was the, he blamed it on like the aviators like he he blamed he blamed I think the Argentinians on the other girl who is um, I can't remember her name Mu, uh, Musine or something Musine, like that Musine yes yeah and was um, she also a prostitute what did she do? yeah something like that like a uh, um, yeah, like a, I don't know. Like, well, she's a, she was a violinist, right? Like that, that's her main. Oh. Was it a violinist or something? No, or a singer. I, I forget. Musician of some sort. Um, yeah. That was her main job. But then, then yeah, to get extra money, she was doing. Um, like I guess she was a. Uh, um, yeah, kind of. I don't. I don't know if it's exactly prostitute or or just like a, she just hangs out with people. Probably she's a prostitute as well. What is, what is what does your book look like for this one? What? what sorry. So what like, I'm just curious about what it, oh. what your edition looks like. Oh, it has um uh, like the it's one world classics, and uh, it's just a. Uh, it looks like a photograph, I guess, of this uh, decaying old wall, probably someplace in Europe, you know, um, with like plaster falling off the bottom of it. And then there's a kind of old fashioned street lamp um, fixed to the wall. And it's nighttime. Because like all the, all the covers for this book I've seen are kind of peculiar. Like the one that I had from the library is like a... It's all white with a black, or like a dark, skinny hand. Mm. Maybe like an old man, or maybe like an alien. Or there's also the the newer version that I've seen that it must be the paperback version, where it's like a skeleton with a horse head. Have you seen that one? No. It's like what what is this? You know, I just don't. <laughs> I don't know. Skeleton with a horse head. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so they're riding horses at, at the beginning of the 
you know, like mounted infantry, I think, mm. for a little bit. But yeah, the skeleton's also holding a gun. <sighs> yeah, yeah, it, it could be true what you said. Like it's um, people take this as kind of a uh, a war novel, um, which it's not. You know, like it. Uh, like even if even if you left the war part out and started in the African part, it would still be such a weird book, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and it it definitely is very similar to Heart of Darkness that that section where he goes up the river to um, relieve somebody, um, some company guy who's gone insane. Um, so that's like that's Heart of Darkness or Apocalypse Now. Um, Oh, early on you were curious. So there was a translator. So the first English language edition came out in 1934, and it was translated by someone named John H. P. Marks. Oh, okay. So that must be the one that they looked at. Yeah. And then Mannheim was translating like in the 80s. Uh, I think it's earlier than that. I think from the um, from this, it looks like he translated it first in '66. But uh, oh, this is peculiar because this guy he also translated Mein Kampf. Oh, really? And then some Gunter Grass. Who? Who? The the first translator? No, oh, Mannheim. Mannheim. Yeah, I just looked him yeah. up. So, like, he spoke French and German, I guess. So, because he's translating a lot of, so, like, E.T.A. Hoffman and Bertolt Brecht. Hmm. Diaries by Hermann Hesse. Yeah, he's all over the place. Yeah. There was. I'm trying to think. I, there was some Hermann Hesse connection to. Celine, I think I read, but maybe. Oh yeah. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'm, I'm, I got your death sweat lineage in my head too, because I'm. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. All, yeah. all the Ezra Pound stuff. <laughs> um. Oh, he translated Heidegger as well. I'm just looking at Novalis. Uh. Henry Corbin. Weird. Creative imagination in the Sufism of Ibn Arabi. Wow. He translated that too. That's that's so interesting. And he, and he translated Never Ending Story. What a weird guy. <laughs> he received a uh, pen translation prize in nineteen sixty four. He sounds like um he sounds like Kohler. He said uh he said he spent time in Munich and Vienna studying at the universities before the rise of Adolf Hitler. <laughs> he undertook postgraduate study at Yale and Columbia. He lived for a year in Germany and Austria as an adolescent, graduated from Harvard at the age of 19. <laughs> he sounds, he sounds like Kohler. Huh. Well, so how, let's... So that's the interesting thing. So we know why fascism was attractive to Céline because 
he was uh, a man of the people. He believed in the people, and he thought the structures that were there, you know, were bogus, and that Hitler was more promising for the people than anything else that, you know, they've had. Yeah, so I think he, um, I'm just reading in this preface here, right? Like he, uh, he wrote this um, political writings from 1936 onwards. Mia Culpa is an anti-communist pamphlet written when he returned from the USSR. So that, that makes sense, right? That, that he was, he could have been enthused by the Russian Revolution, went to the USSR, Became totally disillusioned with it, and that's when he turned to fascism. And then, and then after that, um, followed by texts openly in line with racist far-right ideology, even pro-Hitlerian trifles for a massacre, 1937, School of Corpses, 1938, and a fine mess, 1941. I- um, I think he was like what I read is that he was definitely shocking, and so he was saying a lot of the things that you, some of the other people wouldn't say. You know, like mm. where there's some, you know. So even if you're, you know, like alt right YouTube, there's certain things that you can only wink, wink at. Whereas he was definitely, you know, willing to say some of those really horrible things out loud. Yeah, he just out and out said it. Like, yeah, he's he gets known as an anti-Semite, but um, there's nothing really anti-Semitic in this book that I came across. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, this is before... Before that turn. Yeah. Um, and so I think... Uh, like, the, if we were to read his whole his whole biography, then we would get into some of the anti-Semitic stuff. Yeah. But so the the interesting thing with him is that this, this English writer, Will Self, who I haven't read, but I bumped into because he had that great argument with Slavoj Zizek. Oh yeah. I haven't seen that. Uh, yeah. And so they, you know, really having an interesting argument um but this he really believes in you know this book that's that's the book that made him want to be a writer because of its ability to uh translate the imagination to the page will self said that yeah interesting yeah yeah i I was trying, I thought I had read one of his books. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It might have been short stories. Yeah, yeah, that's what I read. Yeah, Quantity Theory of Insanity. I read that a long time ago. Um, but that's, yeah, that's interesting. So it, it just shows that he still has a uh, an influence, right? And it makes sense. Apparently, this book, um, I'd like to read it. Like, it's supposed to be really um, pro-Hitler, I think. Um, it trifles for a massacre. But it's. I read somewhere it's um, the reviewer was comparing it to Finnegan's Wake. Like, it's just completely uh, 
weird um, avant-garde style. You know, they're, they're, well, so, so I, th I, I think uh, I, I read that a couple ways they interpret that is that it's either those fevers that we were talking about, and that that he, he that he had them, like that. Yeah, yeah that Salim may have been mm. more scrambled and was not able to really hold things together or that was actually intentional structural things that he was doing and that he was just as sharp as ever but there's, mm. there's two schools of thought on that whether or not you know he really <laughs> how intentional that style was whereas with with Joyce you know that he you know it was definitely intentional oh that was something that I should share with you uh, let's see if I can find that email, um, I just I talked to a guy. A show that went up yesterday, and it was about um, it was another where he wrote for the Tunnel Twenty Five. Oh yeah. Um, but I didn't. So like he he has the unique perspective of being a computer programmer who really likes literature and so he's he reads all the difficult books and uh and I asked him about you know Philip K Dick and James Joyce and this like idea of computational download mm -hmm. and uh like he read a lot of dick that he said um but what did he say uh uh for me, though, I think of Finnegan's Wake and Philip K. Dick's info dump as being opposed because Joyce was, for all his obscurity, fundamentally anti-Gnostic, and PKD embraced Gnosticism full bore. I firmly believe that Joyce's approach was to integrate conceptual schemes on this fundamental reality, and the schemes were contingent human overlays, Odd that it should result in such an impenetrable text. But at the heart of Finnegan's Wake, I believe there is a view that that there is a view that there is our reality and there is our language. And while our language may be more real than we think, there is no knowledge to be exposed that is not readily available. Joyce just collated it far more extensively than most of us ever could. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I see that side. That side of it. That um, the whole the whole sort of what gets called the Joyce industry now. It takes that kind of line on Joyce. Most most scholars. Uh, but if you actually if if you look at the uh, the earlier um, writings on Joyce. You find, and even his own letters and and uh, his own feedback on his work, he thought of himself as a prophet, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so that's the thing. Nobody knows how serious he was about that, but he was obviously obsessed with uh, coincidences and trying to uh, um, trying to make coincidences and, and showing the patterns between coincidences. Um, so it's. Uh, I I don't know I I don't know if there's that much of a difference. The other thing is that uh, it's coming out that 
probably Joyce had syphilis, um, so that may have affected his mind. Um, and then also he was having, all the way through 17 years of writing Finnegan's Wake, he was having eye operations, and part of the treatment for his eye operations, they're giving him uh, scopolamine. Um, he even writes about it at one point. Uh, and scopolamine is like the uh, the active ingredient in Datura, you know? Like So he was having <laughs> weird... Uh, visions just from his medicine that he like so I yeah I'm not I'm I'm not sure that they're that different you know I, I get his point about um, uh, Gnostic and non-Gnostic like definitely Joyce was like yeah yes we have to affirm this world yeah is the main thing is affirming this world and 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 I see that with uh, with um, Dick he Dick's hard to uh, summarize too, right? Because he 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 has all kinds of different theories on on his own experiences, um, but he's definitely comes to the conclusion at certain points that yeah, it's there's an evil demiurge that's controlling this world, and and uh, it's fallen, you know. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure. I don't. I'm not sure how how different they really are. Well, like obviously they are completely different in terms of being writers and everything else, but um, their their worldviews, I, I, who knows, you know? There's, there's got to be big differences, but I don't know if they're fundamental differences. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say they're opposites anyways. Did you read how um, you're talking about worldviews, and I was thinking about I, I don't know when it was. It must have been after World War II. Um, Celine's in Paris, and he's kind of crazy and worried that people are trying to poison his cats when Ginsburg goes and hangs out with them a little bit. Yeah, I yeah I heard something about Ginsburg met Celine. I never uh, I never heard what happened in that meeting. And that, that was at the time... Uh... I, I feel like I read a lot about that, and um, it was almost like uh, the way it was written was that... Um, like, Ginsburg is kind of trying to come to terms with his anti-Semitism, but the, also well, the beauty of his earlier work and stuff. He, he, yeah, you might, you might be getting him mixed up with Pound, right? Because, so... So Ginsburg did that with Pound, like he had this this meeting with Pound in Venice. Oh, maybe you're um, right. Well, I think I think Ginsburg also met with Celine. I don't, but you're probably right that I just. No, no, I think I I think you're right too that he did he did have another meeting with Celine, but I haven't read too much about that. Like that'd be interesting to check into here. Yeah. Um, but definitely that's what happened when he met um, Pound. Uh, they have this whole discussion about his anti-Semitism. And then Pound, Pound kind of apologizes for it. He calls it a stupid suburban prejudice, said it was all wrong. <laughs> but that would make sense that, that uh, Ginsburg would track down Celine too and try to meet him. Ginsburg was all over the place. <laughs> but so oh, like, yeah. that's like, I think about that, how like we couldn't, 
like Philip K. Dick is dead, but we were interviewing the people that were close to him. Mm-hmm. But you know, life is life has gone on. So like it would it would be you know, the same story where if if your moment is over, right, to <laughs> you know, like have David Lee Roth on for forty two minutes or something, right? You know <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I just I just found a um uh uh I guess it's a a conversation with Burroughs Corso and Ginsburg and they're talking about um meeting Celine. So Burroughs said um, Alan Ginsberg uh, says, no, that would be 58. Uh, Ginsberg said, that, we went to see Celine. And Burroughs says, oh, that would be in 58, because in 61 I was in Tangiers. Um, and then later on they talk. Um, so Moore, this guy Moore, I don't know, was friendly enough because he, he gave us a letter of uh, introduction to Celine. Yes, that's right. Uh, Burroughs says, Ginsburg, so Burroughs and I went to visit Louis Ferdinand Celine. And Corso said, that's where I blew it. I had to fuck that cunt sick that day. I don't know what that's about. <laughs> and then, uh, so back to Corso's, Peter, uh, Peter wasn't there. Uh, come on, so what happens? Oh, it's, and then it stops. <laughs> so, anyways, they went to see him in uh, in '58. It looks like Burroughs and Ginsburg. So yeah, that would that would have been way before he met Pound. I think that was in '67. Yeah, it, I think it says uh, on Wikipedia they visited in the '50s. Yeah. And then he died in 61, as I was saying. But so, like, that's the, the, the hardest thing to wrap my head around is that, like, in, in 61, this guy's a dinosaur in terms of, you know, where he came from. You know? Yeah, how do you mean? Like, uh, um, I'm trying to, like, the equivalent would be, like, uh, uh, I can't even think of an equivalent. <laughs> you know, like, he's from a different world, almost, you know? Like, uh... Yeah, yeah, like, um... Even though, even though, like, you move through the world and the world changes, like, if, if, if... It just seems like he came from a different world... Than the one that I mean, that's the thing. You can, <laughs> the world you die in is not the world you came from, but it's certain. You know, you you know what I'm saying. Like as as yeah. things change. For sure, yeah. They would. He would have a completely different outlook with even that generation. Yeah. Oh. It seems like now I want to quote you at you. Um. It's almost like so he, your book is reminding me of what I'm trying to say. Here, here's a part. He said, um, I'm just reading this. When Burroughs and Ginsburg had gone to talk with Celine in Paris, 
The writers' dogs had barked and snarled, and Ginsburg wasn't reassured when Celine told him they were only there to keep the Jews away. <laughs> so, yeah, he's like, so he was 58. Yeah, anyways, I'd, I'd, I'd love to... Uh, I might try to get this book, Trifles for a Massacre, and see if, see if it's out there to read. Well, it always happens that when we're talking, you make me appreciate it more. And I wonder if when I get irritated with not understand what it's doing, and maybe that's when it's the most challenging that I get irritated and, and like really question its validity. Mm. And so uh, the second half of this, I definitely, you know, I was really hating it and thinking, why do I care about this 20 year old shit who thinks he knows everything and he's telling me about all the, all the ladies that he's banged, you know, it's like, well, he's not. He's not. He's not. Uh, he's not twenty at that point. He's he's becoming. Uh, he's becoming middle aged. Uh, well, let's let's but, figure that out. Okay, so we said that. When was he born? Um. Oh, Celine Nin or ninety four. Ninety four, and yeah. so if it came out in thirty two. Yeah. So he's. Oh wait, I can't do math. <laughs> yeah, so he's he, like he's almost uh, forty. He's almost forty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's only uh, there's only one review that I can see. This is on uh, Japanese Amazon about trifles for a massacre. It just says a real piece of yuck, one star. <laughs> <laughs> a strange bit of rambling nonsense. <laughs> That's the book. <laughs> yeah. Um, so have you heard uh, any links of this book with gas? Just uh, like... Kohler mentions, you know, the, the most beautiful word ever. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's how we, we got sucked into this book. Yeah, that's right. What, what what did he say? Sorry. No, what's that? Yeah, it, just continue. Sorry. I cut, no, but I cut, so, like, no. it was that part where 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 Kohler's flirting with, like, this the ideas of fascism, and so I think he's invoking, you know, he just keeps flirting with the most beautiful name ever uttered or something right and mm. so you know so like he ends with hitler or hitler's in there and so it seems like there's this dance and so i think celine's name is in there yeah um but i think he mentions I, him another time in the text too yeah i think so but i think actually that like not not only for the the character, but I think Gas likes his writing. Was inspired by his writing. So um, uh, yeah, that was a great that was a great interview you had with the uh, the Gas scholar. What's his name? The 
Which one? I feel like I've done three now. You've done three? Oh, I've missed the other ones. Um, yeah. The, w- yeah, the, 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 the one that one. I just did. Um, oh, you, okay. That just came out yesterday. The guy really made some really incredible points. Like, uh, I got him to think about. Well, I didn't. I mean, I, so I, I prompted him to consider the morality. Like, so it's that weird thing where, um, where where the where he landed was that the book is a moral book but it uses immoral means to get there and the immoral means are some of the metaphors that are you know just awful like comparing the holocaust to your sexless marriage uh-huh. right right but you know this guy was saying that gas was really trying to be obnoxious, to be alienating, to be offensive. And so, like, he knew what he was doing. And so he had to do horrible things like that. Which is, like, interesting. Mm. So, because, like, a, you know, like, that's one of those thoughts where, you know, it's it's so easy to read that character is gas just because there's similarities. It doesn't mean it is gas because it's a novel, but it's really, really easy to do that. It's almost like a trap that you'll want mm-hmm. to read that as the author. Uh, um, and then just imagine that William H. Gass is anti-Semitic and has all these horrible bigoted ideas, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. It's hard to imagine that he, he didn't have some of these ideas at some point, right? Well, because it it, it just it does flows, such a great job. Yeah. With <laughs> so the um, so who who was this guy that you that you interviewed? Uh, so I've done Ted Morrissey was you know the guy who came up with the idea, and then yeah, that's that's the one I've listened to, I guess. The next one was uh, Alec Neville Lee, who wrote the piece in the Times that a lot of people find mm-hmm. about the party of disappointed people. Okay. And um, he also wrote a book about uh, Golden Age science fiction, which was really interesting because the man at the center of that story, John W. Campbell, who was the editor for Astounding this science fiction magazine Mm -hmm. ends up being kind of like a Kohler character too. Mm. And so Kohler is just everywhere (laughs) for me. (laughs) And then the one that I put out yesterday is with, um, like I said, he's a software engineer who worked at Microsoft and Google. Um, and, but he also writes about literature on his blog and stuff and he's written a lot of stuff about literature and so he's the one who had some of the really interesting takes on on the tunnel and was that was he critical of it uh no i don't think so i mean so like no it's so funny because they're critical in the way that like uh it's like would you recommend this book to anyone and they're like I don't know. 
<laughs> it's like who is this book for and it's like not very many people <laughs> whereas like this this Celine is is a lot more accessible right yeah 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 it's a lot easier to read it's, it, it, I find it I found it hard to put down actually it was it's fun well, to read so that's interesting because like I, I'm I found the tunnel more compelling Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, so that's what's, what's, uh, like when we talk about difficult fiction, like Ada was difficult to know what was going on. Like, you know, where was this going? Mm -hmm. You know, um, uh, with the tunnel, it just kind of rambled. Um, and so, you know, it's like whether or not you wanted to be in that headspace or not was the problem. But the, what he was actually like, what he was writing about was interesting. Like I, I found like um, the topics held my interest. I wasn't irritated with that. Um, with House of Leaves, I was irritated at the structure, you know, like the, the footnotes and everything and how many hoops we had to jump through to get to where we were going which was mm. the, which was the point and mm. the i'm sure the irritation was also the point too so you know that was a success but with this one it just like you were saying you couldn't put it down and i was i just got i got irritated with it because it just felt so rambly uh. but of course i listened to it and you know like uh it seems like the sections, well, maybe that's not true. They're, they're, they're frequent breaks that, you know, like their breaths, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? So like, uh, you have the, the double line at the top of the page and then you're like, you know, it's, it's like a, almost like a little entries. Yeah. Th yeah. There's no chapters in this book at all and so when you're listening to it it's just it's just words that go on for 19 hours <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's no breaks and it just keeps going and you're like oh my god who are all these people and why do i care yeah this one i don't know if i'd i i would maybe like to listen to a sample of it you know but i i wouldn't i don't have a desire to listen to it but uh the tunnel i do at some point i would like to live uh, listen to his reading of, of the tunnel because I, I think there's a lot there that um, you could catch even easier listening to it especially the author reading it the interesting thing about the, the, the tunnel scholars were for the most part they really haven't like they've spent a lot of time in the tunnel but not like um, doing laps yeah, that that surprised me. With I, I guess it was Morrissey you were talking to, and he said he'd only read it like one and a half times or something. Like, a, yeah, well, but that he, was like the the story with all the dudes. Hmm. Mm. It's yeah, it's but interesting. It, it, I mean, it doesn't. You can read sections. You don't have to do the whole thing. Right. Right, but yeah, like it's it's a gloomy place. It's not necessarily a place you want to hang out in. So that's I guess, 
Like, what are some books that you frequently reread, and they always bring you pleasure? Uh, well, I I read parts of Finnegan's Wake all the time. Like almost every day, I'll pick it up and read something in it. Um, uh, but uh, other books, uh, well, I'm just all over the place with books, so I don't know if I if there's other ones like that where I, I continue to read them. I think like a book like Valis, I. Mm-hmm. I frequently reread and really enjoy on a lot of levels. Yeah, I can see that. There's there's a depressing part to Valis too, though. Um, you know, you know, yeah, it, it's weird. Um, the Valis trilogy, in a way, depresses me more than than this book. <laughs> well, I I think I've only done. The other two books, of like, um, maybe a couple times. Mm. And I think uh, the Timothy Archer book sticks in my mind a lot better than The Divine Invasion. Yeah, yeah. Um, but usually it's just Valis. Like, that's the one. And I think I've done Radio Free Album with more than the other two, which is like Valis mm. <laughs> Part 2. <laughs> Yeah. When when I discovered Radio Free Albemuth, it was really shocking because it was like I got to do something again for the first time because it was the like the same book written a different way. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that one's way darker than Valis actually is. Yeah, that's similar to um. Uh, yeah, you read the, the portrait of the artist as a young man, and then you and then you can read Stephen Hero, and it goes even deeper. Stephen Hero? Yeah, Stephen Hero's. He, he, Joyce did not intend to publish it. Um, I, think his, oh. I think, I forget the story. Like his wife maybe saved it from him throwing it on the fire or, or his sister. Maybe I, can, I can't remember. Um, but uh, yeah, it gets, it's, it goes a lot deeper in some ways than the, the portrait does. When you cast your eyes upon the skylines of this. What's proud nation? Can you sense the fear and the hatred growing in the hearts of its population? Now youth, oh youth, are being seduced by the greedy hands of politics and half truths. The beaten generation, the beaten generation. Misinformation, the beaten generation, the beaten generation. 